You looking for the perfect Christmas gift? Give us a Porter's Club membership. You can still save 50%. We're going to give you the Black Friday offer. Use code GOAT50, G-O-A-T-50, to save 50%. You get a second podcast every week. All the running news. It's the best deal. You save on running shoes. It's great. Link in the show notes. Also, you still want Cyber Monday Black Friday deals on running shoes? we got tremendous savings up on the website. Link in the show notes as well to that. Check the show notes. Two great ways to save. On this week's edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast, we'll start with some breaking news. The premature reports that the marathon wall is dead are not true. 5,000 and 10,000. World record holder Joshua Cheptegei has been completely humbled by the 26.2 mile distance. But don't tell that to Sisse Lime or Wagnestigafa that the marathon is hard. Lime ran a huge PB in the 25th marathon of his life. Altigafa PR'd after having two kids. It certainly wasn't hard for the 36 guys who broke 209. Or how about Kenesi Bikili running 204 at age 41? Parker Volby has broken the indoor and outdoor collegiate records. Embarrassed Jonathan Galt in the process. Grant Blanks has broken the indoor collegiate 5,000 record and made Rojo proud. Addie Ritzenheim has won NXN as a sophomore in high school one year before her father, Dathan. Earlier than her father, Dathan, won his first high school crown. In the USATF Olympic Marathon Trials fields are set. There's plenty of controversy to talk about. Did you know Clayton Young can finish top three of the trials and still not go to the Olympics, even if the U.S. sends three to Paris? Plus, is sexism alive and well? Did you know that at CIM... A man ran 218.04 and won't be going to the trials, but a woman ran 237.04 and will be. All of that and much more on today's show, including a nuclear-grade take from Jonathan Galt on Steve Prefontaine. I am joined, as always, by a staff writer, Jonathan Galt, as well as my twin brother, Weldon Johnson. This may be John's last podcast John, how are, how, are, how, are, how are you holding up? It really was not a, a good week. I mean, Weldon and I caught John. We we always – John likes to complain. We, we say we're going to start taping today at 10.30, at 9.30. It's 10.15. We still haven't started. There's some technical issues, but we always also are just shooting the shit before the show, and we got one of the sh- shooting the shits on, on tape. And this – if you're – well, I mean, I, I don't know, John. I think what you actually said is kind of accurate, but most people just – in this day and age, they kind of hide the truth about Pre. And then you made a few mistakes last week that we'll have to talk about. Well, I think I made one mistake last week, and I would argue it's not even a mistake. I'll defend myself on that in a second. As for the Prefontaine thing, I guess I should know. I view what before recording the show is just sort of we shoot the shit and have some fun, and I kind of forget I've got a hot mic, and then I forget who I'm working with. If I say anything that can be taken out of context and blown into some massive story, Robert Johnson will do that. He loves to do that. Like, we almost had a massive... He wanted to put in the headline 
of our NXN story last last week. Not that Addie Ritzenhain, sophomore wonderkind, daughter of Dathan Ritzenhain, had won her first national title. He wanted to make the story about what shoes she was wearing. So thank goodness it didn't come to that. I'll defend the pre thing a little bit. All right, let's start with Park of Albia, right? Sub 14 in Boston. Sorry, sub 15 in Boston, 1456. NCAA women's record in the 5,000 meters, an amazing performance. And you probably expect me to come back on the show with my tail between my legs saying, oh, I'm such an idiot. I said she would never break 15 minutes. Last week on the Friday 15, I said the paces are supposed to be running 15, 12 pace, which they did. How is she going to do it? I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. Parker Valby very clearly went on a podcast last week, the Sidious Mag podcast. She said, I'm just going to qualify for NCAAs. I'm not chasing the collegiate record or sub-15 or anything like that. I'm uh, So now you're just wanting me to ignore what people are saying in interviews. I shouldn't take people at that word. I, I guess she said she wasn't going for the standard. Her times... Sorry, she said she wasn't going for sub-15, but... She changed plans ahead of the race. And obviously, I knew she was in sub-15 fitness. I think I even said that on the show last week. That's not in debate. But she did change her plans. She ended up going with Annie, Annie Rodenfels, who served as the perfect rabbit in this case. And then she totally crushed it over the final kilometer to run 14.56. It was an amazing performance. Great atmosphere, as always, in Boston. But... I was under the impression she wasn't going for sub-15, which is what she herself said, and then she changed her plans. So is that an L for me? I don't view it as, as such. I'll let Weldon decide whether it's an L or not. He's the official CEO of the company, I think. But, I mean, the simple mistake you made was listening to the Sidious Mag podcast. I mean, that was that's the quickest lesson to be learned, I think, here. By the way, guys, thanks a lot for asking. My elbow is just fine. I guess the people aren't watching the show right now. I'm in a sling. I did. don't think it's even been mentioned on the show. A couple weeks ago, I fell off the ladder. I think I mentioned that, but no one asked for a follow-up. Well, then actually it's did fractured. ask, and you didn't really it's give fractured. much of an explanation, but Weldon asked about it on the show while we were recording. I well, it is fractured. Thanks for asking, guys. Just want to show you. Can y'all see that text message up there? Who that is? We need to be on our, our, our best behavior because I guess there was one bright line in coming from this injury. And now, no, one of the top names in the sport. I just showed y'all the name. Listens to the podcast. How's your elbow? Listen to the whole podcast. And it was never mentioned. So I assume you will live. Wait, can you show us that? And I wasn't really looking at your phone. It's well then. This is, again, one of the most prominent people in the sport. Keep scrolling down. I said, oh, wow, I didn't know you listened to the podcast. Do you see what that says, John? Bro, we can't read any of that. You're going to have to make this point okay. yourself. I don't listen to other running podcasts. I suggest that, that you don't either, John. And there's just fake news out there. You got to know which sources to trust. And the source you should trust every each and every day, twice a week, is Let's Run.com. To get the second podcast every day, you've got to be a member of our supporters club. Join today, Let's Run.com slash subscribe. What do you think of the show? We want to hear from you. Eight, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we have a phone line. 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786.
And if you haven't rated or reviewed us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get those, throw down a five-star, throw down a comment. Just let everyone know how much you love the show. It helps us spread the word, get it out to a bigger audience. I guess the lesson I should take away here is Parker Valby consistently underrates herself. She doesn't have that crazy self-belief or confidence. She said after this race in Boston, she thought she would struggle to run 15-20. I'm just like, anyone who watched her in cross-country, how can you possibly believe that? 15-20 was her PR. She was worried about running well indoors because her last two indoor races hadn't... Got, her, her last indoor race in Boston, where she ran 8-49, hadn't gone amazing, even though that's still a decent time. She just likes to keep expectations low even though for a woman of her talent, we should have pretty high expectations because she's an incredible, incredible runner. So maybe that's the lesson I need to take away here is remember to anytime Parker will throw out a time or something, just subtract 10 or 15 seconds from it. Let me jump in here, John. I will first give you some credit. Great reporting from the meet. I love your tidbit how you said Parker ran an indoor race last year. Didn't tell her parents about it because she thought it was going to go poorly. So even though this NCAA champion, people say, oh, they're just like us. In some ways, they are. They get very nervous. They, don't, they have self-doubt. But I'm going to go with a total L, John, and missing the possibility of the sub-15. I don't need to play the audio. It'll be quicker if I just recap it here from the Friday 15. Anything else you're really excited about you want to cover that we didn't already discuss on Tuesday's show? And I immediately jumped in. I'm just mainly excited about Parker Valby. Being the first woman to go sub-15 in the NCAs, it's going to be a great day. Rojo said, he said, oh, it's not going to happen. Rojo said, I disagree with John. It's going to happen. You had to be open to the possibility, one, John, if she's somewhat within like five seconds of the time, she can kick at the end. And then that somebody else might want to keep the pace going and she's going to go with them. Exactly what happened. Amazing job, Parker. Great run. Yeah, here's the one thing I will add about that. She really opened up a gap over the last kilometer. She was just sitting on Annie Rodenfels for the whole race, which she said afterwards, you know, it was a new experience for her. She's not used to running behind someone in these races. Uh, but then she closed her last kilometer in 2.52. She put six seconds on... Annie Rodenfels, seven seconds over the last kilometer. That, to me, actually says she's in shape to go even faster. Now, granted, this was super fast track. She's in peak cross-country shape. She had a pacemaker for 4K, but it did show at least she had a lot left in the tank that final kilometer. She was amazing. And don't worry, John, we're not going to dismiss you, even though you also mocked me when I insisted last week that you reach out to Josh Herman to see how Kenese Bekele would do. Now. I admitted before Valencia, we'll talk about Valencia later, that if he didn't run well, we'd never mention him for 365 days. There'd be a self-imposed ban. But I look pretty good on that one too. But we can't fire you because uh, on Sunday morning, when John was writing this, uh, John had been working all of Saturday. We weren't really planning. We were going to react to Valencia. And I said, I'm going to react to Valencia once I got up. And John's like, oh, I'll help. But John was watching a soccer game at the same time. We basically had it done when it kicked off and then the game ends and I still don't have it up. John's like, has it been a problem with your computer or what's going on? So it takes me a lot longer. I told my wife the story, John. She's like, he's such a treasure. 
Oh, thanks. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, I maybe I should get some sort of hazard pay. I had to write the first part of help with that first part of that Valencia article while watching my beloved Brighton and Hove Albion struggle against Chelsea in the first half. And then I watched the second half totally stressful. We couldn't beat them with 10 men. Couple a couple ridiculous officiating decisions. Uh, we don't need to get into that, but I mean, the fact that Moises Caicedo is allowed to play the second half after picking up should have been three yellow cards. Just ridiculous. Anyway, other notes from BU. This was a great meet. I mean, we should also say Harvard's Graham Blanks broke the men's collegiate record in the 5,000 meters. Though collegiate records are a very loose term. There's about five different collegiate records. He This was definitely the fastest indoor time ever by an NCAA athlete. I view this as the overall record, but Robert, you don't because Lobby Lang ran 13 flat the summer of 2013. Is that still your position? Correct. To me, it's very simple, and this is the official let's run.com policy. What does – I guess you could have an in-season and out-of-season, but the collegiate record is what do you run while a collegiate athlete for that school? So, you know, it, this is – Grant Blanks is a Harvard student. He's still on the team. He runs his time. Lowell Lang was still an Arizona student. He ran that time. It was in the summer. I The moment you run your last NCAs, that's when it stops for me. So if you're a senior, you don't get to count times the summer of your senior year, but you can count times in the summer of your junior year. Absolutely. Either way, tremendous run by Grant Blanks. This, I mean, look, this was a good run. It was interesting because we all thought the possibility of a sub-1305, even a sub-13 might be there, even though the pacing was set for 1310. And I was doing the math as this one was going on. And, you know, it's kind of misleading. Like, you actually want to have a slower pace and then just kick it down. It's easier to do. It's harder to get the professional rabbits to last 3 or 4K. So if you're on 1310 pace, I think all you need is like a 228 last thousand to break 13. Now that can't be right. I haven't done the exact math, but this was a somewhat similar situation for blanks as it was for Valby and that he had some help here. Uh, great rabbiting through 3000 meters by Christian Noble and AJ Ernst. that got them to about, I think they were like 13, 12 pace around that point, which was sort of what they were targeting. And then Kai Robinson, who also wants the Olympic standard, he's Australian. He's like, okay, I'm going to push it the fourth kilometer. That's what you need to do to get one of these truly fast times is you need a really good guy to sort of go for it. And self-sacrifice isn't totally the right word, but like take the risk, essentially. And that's what Kai Robinson did. And then Sam Atkin took over with 800 to go. And then Graham Blanks goes with 400 to go. Blanks gets the time, 1303.78. Kai Robinson still gets a PR, 1306. And he told me after the race, you know, it's it's hard to be that disappointed. That's a great race for him. It's a five-second PR. But at the same time, you know, he has his eyes on the Olympics as well, and he came just short of that Olympic standard. So a little bittersweet for him. And then Atkin, third in 1306. And then after that, Parker Wolf, 1313. So... Graham admitted afterwards, yeah, I had to run a selfish race. I, you know, he's to maximize his personal chances of getting the standard. He sat back 
And he said, you know, I owe a bunch of guys some drinks tonight. I think that probably would be Kai Robinson, Sam Atkin, and then the two pacemakers. But he did what he had to do to get the Olympic standard. And instead of pursuing an internship on Wall Street or Capitol Hill, like some of his Harvard classmates this summer, 2024, he's going to be trying to make the Olympic team. I redid the math. I am correct. You run 13.10 pace for 4K. You're 10.32. All you need is 2.28 to break 13. They were 10.34. He ran 2.29. That's 13.03. But in the intro, we said this race made Rojo proud in the sense of, although I'm starting to feel like an old man, he, he crosses the finish line. And I know you noticed it, John, because you put a picture of it up on Twitter. The dude turns around and gives a bow to the crowd. and. You noticed it, John. It seemed like you loved it, which is kind of shocking because I don't know how many years ago it was, 12, 13 years ago, when my famous, one of my runners famously won the Ivy League 1500-meter championship, crossed the line, finished first. The crowd was booing, led by the Dartmouth contingent. He bowed to them, and you were outraged by it. No, I wasn't. One, I wasn't at Dartmouth at that point. Two, he shouldn't have been disqualified. Jimmy Wyna won that race. And three, it was clearly a... that You agree, that was like a mocking, sarcastic bow, right? That wasn't like a celebratory bow, which was the situation with Graham Blanks. He's running in Harvard in front of a lot of Harvard fans and just general running fans. Everyone was cheering for him. We don't... He, Jimmy Weiner knew he was going to piss people off, right, Robert? In fairness, John, I was yeah, there. But- the crowd was booing him. I have no problem with the bow, but we don't need to rehash something from 12 years ago. 14 years ago. But I, I said I was proud of this race. I mean, obviously, Phil, you know, we have some distant friends of the family connection to him, but you know, this guy reminds me, he's like a combo of like two of my best runners at Cornell. Like, I, my other runner, Bruce Hyde, was an All-American in cross-country, won the Hepson cross-country like 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 Graham. He was like, he once said to me, why would you ever, t- if you have the best kick, why would you ever take the lead until the, until the end of the race? Like, that's the other runner's problem, and you just sit on them. But we, we were having this debate, and this actually is when we got to the pre-Fontaine clip pre-show. Who is the best runner in the NCAA? John... Why don't you tell everyone about what happened? The Boston Globe tweeted out this morning. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I follow the Boston Globe, my hometown paper on Twitter, and it says they have a tweet from their main Boston Globe account linking to a story. And the tweet says, in some ways, Graham Blanks is your stereotypical Harvard student, but Blanks has an important distinction. He's probably the best collegiate distance runner in the country. And I quoted that tweet. I was like, oh, this is great, you know? The Boston Globe is linking to a story on... Or they've written a story about Graham Blanks. Good for the sport. But then I was like, why do you have to include the word probably in that headline? He just won the NCAA cross-country title and beat everyone in the NCAA. He just set the collegiate record and beat everyone again. Why do you need the word probably? He's the best distance runner in the, in the country. Collegiate distance runner in the country. That's cruelly accurate for now. But I think Walden and I are both leaning. If we're betting right now, and you, okay, who wins the outdoor? I don't know if they're both going to be in the same race. Indoor 5,000. 
Well, because they might be focused on the Olympics. So that's the Indoor 5000 probably won't happen because Kai Robinson is going to go to Stanford, going to go out to Australia, try to make the team there. So Kai Robinson's running NCAAs. He told me that. Okay. Who wins Indoor 5000? I think I'm going to lean towards Kai Robinson because he did all the work in this race. Graham's perfectly allowed to sit on him and outkick him. Although Graham did beat him pretty badly in the last 400, but Kai was just so dominant. His kick was so good. Like the person that pushes the pace from, from three to four K is, is really sacrificing themselves. He was, his kick was so good last spring that I also think it indoors, he's going to be getting ready. He's going to be peaked right then because it's right before the, the Australian Olympic trials. Right. Whereas Graham's going to be training through that and focused on the U S Olympic trials, which are, much later. So I, I think we're going to have a peak Robinson and indoors. We're going to have a 90% grand blanks. We're going to have Robinson sitting and not trying to do any of the work. And I think how Robinson will be your NCAA indoor 5,000 meter champion. Not a bad prediction, Robert. I frankly don't care. The question is who's the best runner at the moment. That's it's grand blanks. You just beat Kai Robinson twice in two big races. So I don't see why that needs to be a probably qualifier in that. You guys are losing viewers left and right, like Boston Globe, blah, blah, blah. We have a good thing going here. First of all, let's appreciate it. It doesn't matter the kid went to Harvard, but a kid from Harvard has run 1303 for 5,000 meters. Used to be you ran like 1320, 1330, you were good. We'll talk about this with Valencia. The game has changed in terms of times for sure. I mean, the other reason that I thought Parker Valby would go sub-15 is like, the game has changed. She's now 55 seconds off the world record in the 5,000 meters, as good as that run was. On a percentage basis, on a percentage basis, it's equivalent to a man running a 1325, how far off they are the world record, outright world record. But I think John's trying to have it both ways. Previously, he described Graham's Blanks as a selfish race. But earlier, before we got on the air, Rojo said was criticizing Graham Blanks for, I don't know if he said running like a coward, but that was sort of the implication. Like, please, no, please. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. First of all, Graham described his own race as selfish. Those were his words, not mine. Two, Robert said he ran a race that would have Steve Prefontaine rolling over in his grave. And so then me, on a hot Which bike, before we started, before we started... The show. Let me just roll the tape. This John. is what I said. Please play the audio. He ran a race that would have made Steve Prefontaine roll up in his grave. He admitted it. Steve Prefontaine didn't grasp the concept of winning. Oh. Well, is that on tape? Yes. Oh, well, that needs to be put on the thing. Wow. Talking about rolling over his grave, Steve Prefontaine is just. I think what we all said is accurate. It would have made Steve Prefontaine roll over in his grave. But the point of the race is to win it. I, I don't know enough about Steve, but maybe he pushed the pace because he didn't have a kick. You know, you can talk about how, how you love to push the pace because the limit and the gift and blah, 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 giving your all. But, you know, also if you have no kick and your only option to winning the race is to break them early, maybe that's why you're doing it. Look, First of all, I shouldn't be held responsible for stuff that happens before we start recording. This is, it's like a free zone take, you know, there, it's like the purge. There shouldn't be any consequences. 
But second of all, the way Pre described his races, if you listen to his quote, he ran to see who has the most guts, right? He viewed his races as works of art. He tried to run beautiful races 50 years before Kipchoge was trying to do the same. And winning was a byproduct of that. Some Often, he was a fantastic athlete, but he wasn't content with just sitting and kicking on someone for the win. But sometimes in professional running, that's what you have to do. If, you, if your goal is get the Olympic standard, if Graham Blanks runs 1305.3, but he led the whole thing and ran what Pre would describe as a beautiful race, for Graham Blanks, that's he didn't accomplish the goal. So I'm... I guess maybe not saying, I think it's probably unfair to say Pre didn't grasp the concept of winning. That was an unfiltered gut reaction. But he wanted, if he was going to win, he wanted to accomplish it his way, right? That's probably now I'm getting to offer a more nuanced take now that we're actually recording. But I guess the lesson also for me is one, Parker Valby underestimates herself. Two, don't say anything next to Robert or Weldon Johnson when a microphone's going because it will be used against you in a court of law or on an episode of the podcast. I'm too young to know about Priest Kick, but if he had an amazing kick, do you think his whole mindset would have been differently? Probably, right? He, I mean, he, he got out kicked in Munich in 72 for the bronze and, well, for the gold too. Part of that maybe it was because he made a, a harder move, but I think that kind of does dictate your strengths as a runner kind of dictate how you, what kind of style you employ in racing, right? Like I would say that's pretty, that's generally universal. People with great kicks aren't always the ones put, are usually not the ones pushing the pace. Anyways, Graham did a great job of what Alex Gibby told me, he told him to do in cross country quote. The one thing I told him is just make sure he's hidden in the pack till it's time to make yourself known. Right. One other thing about this meet, Nico Young, big win in the 3K. I'm really impressed by him. Not the time. Just like in cross country, he was better than Graham last year. He's not better than him this year. I think his place may have gotten a little bit worse this year than last year, John. Is that right? Yeah, he was second last year and sixth this year. But he he seems to be following the Mike Smith mantra of we don't get caught up on the results. We're all about the process here because they weren't disappointed in NCAs as a team. And it doesn't seem like he was down in the dumps individually either. I mean, he and Graham Blanks were kind of in a similar boat, like both fast, but not with big kicks. How are they going to win? Graham breaks through. He doesn't, but then he goes to BU wins this 3000. And then he's like, I've just felt better. Like my legs are stronger. I have more in the tank. Like he knows that even though the cross country results from an outsider look worse than last year, that he's progressing as a runner. He can feel it in the training. And I just think that's a real testament to him and to coach Smith. I loved everything I saw from Nico young at this meet. What was one of the knocks of on him in the message board? He's really nope. good, but he doesn't win big races. And obviously, there are bigger races than the BU meet. But I think you can argue him winning the 3K at BU, defeating Kieran Lum, who is a world championship 
1500 meter runner for Canada last year and defeating Ryan Sharpie and Dennis Musa- uh, sorry Brian Musau and Ryan Sharpie who are two top Oklahoma State athletes he outkicked all of them uh, and ran 737, which is one second off the collegiate record. I think this is his biggest win as a college kid. Two, what he said after the race, Robert, not only that he's in the position now where he feels like he's strong enough to be able to kick at his best on the last lap. Like He's one of those guys, hey, I don't have the top max speed, but if I'm at the bell and I'm not feeling tired or I'm feeling good, good enough, I can still get to very close to my max speed, which might be enough. Three, he revealed he was a little banged up last year, and I don't know if that goes back to indoor as well or if it's just uh, outdoor track, but now he seems to be healthy, which is a good sign. And the other thing, we haven't even mentioned this, maybe the most impressive thing of the whole day. Did you see what he did after he ran this 737? He came back and ran the 5,000. Yeah, he doubles back in heat three of the 5,000. He's supposed to be pacing his teammate, Theo Quacks, I'm like, all right, you know, I've seen something like this before. It was about three and a half hours afterwards. It's not totally crazy for a teammate to come back and pace. But then I'm like, all right, is he going to step off at some point? You know, I'm just watching them run by. I don't really pay that much attention to Heat 3. And then suddenly the bell's ringing and Nico Young is just kicking again. And I'm like, this guy's going to run the whole freaking race. So not only does he win the 3K, he comes back and runs 13.22. That's the seventh fastest time in the NCAA this season. It'll probably get him to NCAAs. Just kind of screwing around afterwards. And I went up to them, the NAU guys afterwards. I'm like, was he supposed to run that whole thing? And Mike Smith's just like, well, I told him to basically go as long as he can pacing Theo. And then I didn't realize he was going to stay in the whole race, but he felt good. That was like damn him, friend. That just shows you how strong the guy is right now. Has any collegian ever run seven thirty seven and thirteen twenty two in the same day? Has any one period ever done that? It's kind of wild to me. I'm not sure, but we need to get one other thing out here here about BU before we get to Valencia. I mean, our international viewers are like, why are these people talking about? Well, I guess thirteen or three is pretty pretty good indoors, but. There were some other races at BU. I wonder how much money that the, the, the BU track and field program made. I like was just going through race results weekly. It looked like there was close to just the, they only list like the top 3,000, 5,000 miles. It was like close to a thousand entries. Like when you run the 60 at this meet, do you have to also pay a hundred dollars? Like they easily made brought in over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. But, it's, it's crazy. If, Robert, I'm looking at the results. Heat eight of the BU 5k. The winning time's 13.53. There's four guys under 14 minutes in Heat 8. When I would run at BU a decade ago in college, I my PR in college was 14.25, which I ran at BU. And I was in, I think it, that got me second in one of the BU races, I believe. Uh, you know, I would usually be in the first or second Heat when I would run the 5K at BU. Nowadays... I wouldn't even be in like heat eight. I'd be in like heat nine or 10 or I'd be kicked to the morning sessions. It's just kind of crazy how this meet has changed. Like people didn't even go to this meet when I was in college. People would go to Terrier and Valentine. But now this is like the hottest ticket in the NCAA and you've got people breaking 14. Have we ever had a meet where people are breaking 14 minutes in the eighth heat of the 5K? It's just crazy. This is nuts. The 100th place finisher 
in the 5,000 meters. 14 flat, 0.23. And Nico Young, like, he smoked Drew Bosley in that 5K. Finished yet, finished one spot behind Drew at NCAs. So I think, I don't know, my take is Nico didn't have his best race at NCAs this year for whatever reason. It wasn't horrific, but to win NCAs, you got to be on your A-plus game. Unless you're like Henry Rono or someone. I wanted to point out there were some middle distance races here. By the way, everyone says Jerry Schumacher doesn't race everybody. Oregon raced a ton of people in this meet, so looks like they will be competing in indoor track. What, Robert, did you see the most notable, or I mean, I feel bad for the kid. He's a freshman. This might, well, no, he ran cross country, but did you see what happened to Connor Burns? Yeah, Connor Burns kicked a lap early. It was like 13, 18 at 4,800 and then ran like, it was th- ran like 14 flat, right? Must have been 13, 28. Yeah, he kicked a lap early. It was 13, 19, 70 with a lap to go and then ran a 40, so 14 flat, but I mean that's disappointing, but he would have you know he would have run thirteen fifty three or something like that thirteen fifty five, not a big deal. No, it's something he'll probably laugh about when he's a senior. But you know, it's it, I feel I feel bad for him more than anything. Did you see it, John? I didn't see it live. I, that I mean, well then I think if I stayed until the final heat of the five k, I would have been there till like eleven p.m. at night or something. I left after like the third or fourth heat. Because I had to go, it was already like 8 p.m. and I needed to go file some stories. And if I had been there all night, like staying to watch people break 14, I probably wouldn't have gotten home till after midnight. I'm not saying you should have been there. I'm just, I'm sort of shocked. People like someone's not yelling like, "Hey, dude, you got two laps to go." But but by the point you do it, it's probably too late. And my only thing for this BU meet, and maybe they don't care, can they have all the top sections for like? Women's mile, men's mile, 3K, 3K, 5K, 5K, all back-to-back at a certain window. You can cram that in in probably like an hour and a half. Then fans could just, if we actually ever cared about fans, they could show up then. But otherwise, I think, John, you were out there like what? Like hours. It's just not fan-friendly, but nothing in our sports fan-friendly. No, I mean, if you really wanted to pitch this as like a spectator event, you say, okay, we've got the one hour hot window and it's just, yeah, four like amazing distance races, throw in the mile. That would be pretty, if you're trying to make it spectator friendly, that's the best one. And then you charge a bunch of money, but like selfishly as a journalist, this is actually easier because I can make sure I can grab everyone for an interview after a race. Like if you've got, Section one of the mile for the men, followed by section one of the mile for the women. It's going to be very hard for me to watch all the races and talk to everyone I want. So, but yeah, for fans, it's better to have them all at once. And there you know why the sport isn't popular. It's the journalist's fault. <laughs> all we do is complain and want easy schedules for our work lives. All right. Anything else on BU or shall we move yes. to Valencia, which is the probably the biggest, most important running event of the weekend? <laughs> I just want to point out that, as I said, those Oregon guys were running, led by Elliot Cook, proving that NCAA cross country and middle distance on the track aren't necessarily the same thing. Elliot was fifth, I mean, at least fifth at Pac 12. That's pretty good for a miler, but only 114th NCXC. He ran 355 in the mile for second. Race was won by Sam Ellis, former Princeton guy, who 
Went to Washington for years. Now coached by Andy Powell. Now runs for on. It looks like 355-36. Aiden McCarthy, the seventh placer in the 800, 356. But also Harvard's Sophia Gorion. You know, this is the girl that went too flat as an 11th grader. She's now a freshman at Harvard. Looks like she's kind of moved up in distance. 200th at NCAA cross country. She was second in the fifteen in the fifteen hundred as well. In the miles, she ran four thirty six, which was a PB. So, Robert, are you telling me you just discovered the concept of middle distance runners? No, I'm just pointing this out to people that you know Andy Weeding was like 80th in NCAA cross, and then running three thirty that summer. Yeah, Actually, I, mean, I know he was right ahead of my guy at, at NCAA. You don't have to be a superstar. But when I do see someone really jump on the cross country, like when the goose won the ACC cross, then I'm like, wow, man, they're, they're, they're special. Now, I, admittedly, I didn't think he was 343 special. Well, I don't think any of us did. I, I was impressed. Elliot Cook, fifth at Pac 12 cross country after running 146 and winning the Pac 12 and the 800. I mean, that to me is pretty damn impressive range. For, I, don't, I don't really care how he did at NCAAs. Can we turn to a race that would have made Steve Prefontaine proud? And that's what we like to call the seventh world marathon major, the Valencia Marathon, where 10 guys, including two pacers, went out in 60-35 at halfway. That included world record holder at 5K and 10K, Joshua Cheptegei in his debut. Joshua would soon blow up and finish... In the place, thirty seventh place. This is how deep this race is. In two oh eight fifty nine, Sisse Lima, the former London Marathon champ, would I don't know power away to the win because he slowed down the second half, but get the win in two oh one forty eight, becoming only the fourth man in history to go sub two oh two. And the great Kenanisa Bekele. At the age of 41, he's back, baby. He's still relevant. Runs 204.19 for fourth place. On the women's side, I mean, marathoning is crazy. Rognish Tegepa, who hadn't run a marathon in, I think, two years. No, almost four years. Her last marathon was January of 2020. Previously had a 217 PP, is gone for four years, and comes back and runs 215.51. One. And she was gone for four years for a good reason. It wasn't a drug suspension. It was having two children. Yes. Wasn't trying to imply anything. I'm just saying it's amazing to me. Someone can be gone, come back in the first race, and oh, 215. 215 used to be almost a world record type. I mean, this is crazy. Her last marathon was when, John? January of 2020. Okay. Radcliffe's record was just broken, I think, in 2019, right? The fall of 2019? October 2019 in Chicago, yeah. yeah. Up until then, 215 was world record talk. Now she's gone four years, comes back 215. If this doesn't show that shoes in the game have changed things, and there were super shoes in 2019. I think they're better now or something's changed, the mindset, whatever you want to say. But let's talk about the men's race first. Yeah, the men's race, I watched it. I did not get up live, Full disclosure, after spending Saturday night at BU, I didn't stay up until 2.15 in the morning to watch this thing live on Sunday. 
but I did watch it after the fact on Monday. The crazy thing to me is just like, no one's afraid of going out fast in the marathon these days. This was the third fastest opening split we've ever had in a legit marathon, 60-35. There were eight runners with it, including a guy in his debut, Chepta guy. Just no one's afraid of going out on basically 201 flat pace at this point. Now, obviously not everyone held it, and some people it ended badly for Chepta guy, but we've seen people... I mean, now that someone's run two, 30, two hours, 35 seconds, people are just like, well, all right, I guess 201. If a human can run two hours, I, I can run 201. The, the other wild thing to me was, watching it back, they keep saying they're still ahead of Kiptum's world record split. Like, at 30K, they were 30K, 126.04. That was 27 seconds faster than what Kelvin Kiptum split during his world record in Chicago. It's just that then Kiptum went like 13.51 and 14.05 for his next <laughs> two 5K segments and dragged the re- world record a lot faster. But I was just like, it's it reminded me how much of a negative split, especially over the last 10K, that Kiptum world record was. I didn't watch the whole thing either, John. But that was kind of annoying me how they were saying they're ahead of world record pace. No, they're not. They're ahead of world record split, not pace. They made that clear. They made that clear. But I just want to remind people what Kiptum did in Chicago. These are his 10K splits. 2842, 2857, 2852. That's the 30K. He's 15 seconds behind these guys. Then he ran, John said it, but just 5K. Let's add this up. 2752 after a 30k warm up like he he was more than a minute faster than these guys were he would have lapped all of these runners and he ran 30 to 40k in chicago so much faster that he would have if they were running on a track he would have lapped every runner in valencia like it's just crazy cuz they were like 1437 1431 here for that segment. Yeah. The one one other thing you I got from watching the race that it was hard to get just looking at results and stuff. Because Valencia Marathon, we love them. They put together great races, amazing fields, super deep. The one problem is the leaderboard and timing website is just not very good. You had to download the app and even then you can't get like a leaderboard with splits. Like if you want to find out how this race played out, actually the best way was to go back and read the Let's Run message board because they're kind of saying how the race is changing. Because well, looking just at the results, I wouldn't have realized Kibwa Kandier, who uh, has, has run 57-32 in the half marathon, former world record holder, he was up there for quite some time. He was one of the final guys. Uh, it was him, Cissé Lemma, and DeWitt Walde. Lemma wins it. Walde was third. Kiptum was still there. Sorry, not Kiptum. Candier was still there at 30K. He was one of the final guys to drop. He ends up fading to sixth in 204-48. So I came away actually a little bit more impressed by Candier than I would have been just looking at the results because he stuck in there for a while. He just faded a little bit more than some of the other guys. Yeah, I woke up Sunday morning and I thought, how this brought me back 20 years when all these races weren't broadcast, I thought, how do I want to find out? I thought about going to the front page. I'm like, no, that'll ruin it for me. I won't get any drama. 
So I had bookmarked the official thread. And I just went through that. It was really great. People were, whoever was up at 3 a.m., thank you. Like they had descriptions. They had who's in the pack. Okay, but Kaylee's falling out before halfway, but he's hanging in there. Can he get a good one? And then they're like, chapter guys off the back. They were doing the women's race. You had a real sense of it. It was actually probably better than having to spend two hours. I got it in about 20 minutes. John, actually watching the race, my only critique is, Weldon says we can we refer to Valencia as the seventh major. I don't. To, to me, first of all, if the actual World Abbott World Marathon Majors expands, they're going to stop being majors to me, and they're just going to be like the Diamond League. And then we're going to have majors. <laughs> one will be London. One will definitely be Valencia. Like It's getting up there to me as as one of the best races in the world. You know, Boston, American bias, Boston because of its history, New York too. But then where do you put Chicago, Berlin, Tokyo? Anyways, but actually watching these type of races, John, is it? Oh, and they were saying the broadcast was amazing. It was elite focused only. You could go to their website and get it for free in Spanish. So there were English commentators too. They weren't doing any nonsense on the English broadcast. Instead of having people that could barely speak English, they had knowledgeable people who were citing Jonathan Galt's preview in it. But watching this race, is it really that fun? Because to me, my one complaint is, oh, like rabbit. it's fun seeing the results and like, oh my God, all these guys ran fast and Bikile. But is it kind of boring to watch just because it's just like a, a war of attrition? I mean, the first half marathon, you kind of knew what happened. I wanted to watch that because I kind of wanted to see how Bikele looked and he was tucked in towards the back for most of it, so it was kind of hard to tell. But yeah, then look, the first half when the paces are still there, nothing much happened. So that's not that much different from any of the other paced races. The second half was, I, I enjoyed. And the good thing about this broadcast, it was elite focused and they had a bunch of cameras, not just... On the lead pack, they would have them on the chase pack. They'd have them on the lead Spanish person. Like this, this was an American broadcast. They'd have it on the lead American person, which is what we asked for. So, from that respect, I think it was great. They did a split screen almost the entire time. Like if you're one of these people who wants more women's coverage of some of these races that start simultaneously, which Valencia does, they had a camera on the women's t- feed a lot. The only bummer about the split screen being so prominent is it could be a little hard to make out some details, especially like Bikele, if he's at the back of the men's pack, it was kind of hard to see him totally. But no, overall, I thought this broadcast was great. No human interest stuff, no wheelchair stuff. It was just focused on the elite runners. And for for a fan of elite running, you can't ask for that much much more. And they're giving you the splits. Like the 5K splits and stuff, they'll bring it up and they'll say, this is what this means. This is the pace they're on, that sort of thing. Like they were hammering that home so let's start at the top what do we make of Lima's win i mean he won london in 2021 but he's you know he's 32 years of age which isn't old for a marathoner but this was his 25th marathon i mean it wasn't like he wasn't good but his pb was 203 36 2019 berlin he's got four others under 205 so i mean but this was like a almost a two-minute PB in marathon number 25. Like, do we think, you know, while we're talking about how the game's changed, it's clearly even changed from 2019. These are the same runners 
experienced guys whopping off huge PBs. Like, do we think that the, the last generation of the shoes is better or is it cumulative because they can now wear these shoes in training too and they're recovering better and they're just getting more training and it's all these little things added up together? It, it's kind of wild because but with him, I mean, after 2021 London, he hadn't been doing much. He was DNF Boston, seventh in London, second in Prague. There are a few things, Robert. I think the shoes are a little bit better. Valencia has like perfect conditions. Like the last two years, it's just been amazing. And the other thing is, it's a, it's the spaghetti against the wall theory. Cisse Lemmer is one of what ten sub two hundred five guys we had in this field. If you say, okay, all of you guys go out in sixty thirty five pace through halfway, chances are one of them is going to have a good day and be able to hang on and run two hundred one, right? So. I'm not saying Cissé Lem is not a great marathoner. Obviously, he is. He's won London. But I think part of it is a numbers game. If you have 10 guys trying to run 201, that's you're going to have a decent chance at least one of them does it as opposed to 10 guys trying to run 203, right? They, they, they now know 201 is possible. More people are going for it, so we're going to see more people do it. I think it's a little similar on the women's side. I was about to say we should get a Nike shoe exec, see if they could tell us if shoes are better now than in 2019. But I just noticed something. I know what you're going to say. Adidas winning both races. Not, we'll reach out to Adidas, see exactly what shoe they're wearing. They're wearing the $500 shoe with the horrific name. Adidas has the worst naming system for shoes. Adidas, you still can work on that. Apparently, you make great shoes, but the naming stuff is confusing. I guess Nike shoes are some of the racing shoes are confusing too. But have a name we can relate to. But uh, speaking of shoes, Kenisa Bakayle runs for a company called Anta, I believe, and he still ran two hundred four forty one. So a company we never heard of. It's Chinese, so maybe who knows? It might be one of the factories where some of these other shoes are made. I mean, well, it is a pretty big Chinese company. They had a revenue of $7.7 billion last year. So I didn't know they had... They claim they have a super shoe and seems to work if you've got a 41-year-old guy running 204 in it. It's sort of crazy, though. Remember, like, leaning all these Chinese apparel companies were going to take off in the U.S.? None of them have really made it. But we thought there was going to be a Chinese company sponsoring... Kelvin Kiptum earlier this year, he agreed to, I think it was Kualdang or something like, I'm going to totally butch the name. And that's like, oh, actually, no, he's still in a contract with Nike. You can't really have two deals or Nike had a rat matching right or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, Kiptum was kind of people wondering if he would go to them earlier in the year. For me, I wonder how the money works at this race. Like, I see race results weekly, you know, 10th place, you run 205, 46, you're getting 2,000. But are there appearance fees for all these people? Or do they really think they're all going to win it? Or is, are there are there shoe deals? Are there bonus? I mean, I get it if you're like, you know, from some country and you want to set a national record or something like that. But if you're trying to get the Olympic standard. But otherwise... I'm fascinated. Like, what makes everyone want to go there? By the way, can we get some Americans to go there? Just please. Like, this is clearly the best place in the world to try to run 206, 207, 208. 
Right, I'm I'm convinced if every American just bypass, they said instead of the full 2022 marathon season, we're all just going to go to Valencia and try to run the Olympic standard, we'd have three Americans under 208, 2010. Now, it's easy to say that in retrospect because the 2022 and 2023 Valencia marathons were two of the fastest, deepest, perfect condition races in history. But I, I do have to think, if you look ahead to the next Olympic cycle, assuming the standards are still going to be pretty hard, you wouldn't have Americans doing this like the winter before the trials because there's two mo- there was exactly two months between 2023 Valencia and the 2024 trials. But here's my prediction. The 2026 Valencia Marathon, you will see a lot of Americans go there to try to hit the Olympic standard because it will be within the qualifying window and it'll be their best chance to run a time and they'll have enough time to recover for the trials. I don't know about that though. They've been turning down a fifty, sixty thousand dollar appearance fee in, in Chicago. Uh, that's a that's actually a fair point. This we debated this about the athletes who chose New York over Chicago, like Karen, Kellen Taylor. I guess chose. You know, they said they didn't get into the elite fields. They probably could have showed up and just you know ran for nothing. But yeah, I guess that is still a calculated decision. Do you want to risk turning down one of your big paydays of the year? to chase a time for a race you may not even qualify for anyway. It's uh, it's a big decision. And did you guys see... I'm a little upset that we haven't mentioned it before now. By the way, we've been talking a lot about shoes. If you want to know what shoe you should wear, go to our shoe, new shoe review site, betterrunningshoes.com, betterrunningshoes.com, or let's run the comp slash shoes. We've got the best reviews. You can now purchase shoes from there. Also, you can help us out by reviewing your shoe right now. But why haven't we mentioned this before? Did you guys see how I did in Valencia? Even with my arm in a sling, you guys were worried I'd never break a three-hour marathon. Yago Rojo, 28th place, 207.47. There was a nice message board thread about how Rojo has run 207. Spanish guy. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, if this guy, if this was Rojo in disguise, this not only... Have you fulfilled your sub three? You've become the third American with the Olympic standard, Robert. You've solved all our problems. Congratulations. It wasn't me. It was just my namesake. But that placed him 27th place. That's the exact same time that Connor Mance ran in Chicago. And Connor Mance was sixth. That's crazy. So, but also think about it that for world rankings and stuff, Valencia should be treated like a world marathon major. They need to get stuff on board. It is. It's a platinum race. Okay. I thought World Marathon Majors had their own criteria as platinum races, John. I think it's platinum in the world rankings. All right. Let's talk about Bekele. Robic, you can take your victory lap here. You you wanted to talk about him before the race. I said, why? This guy's old. He's not really relevant anymore. And now he's relevant. Fourth place, 204.19. He reclaims the Masters World Record. And the crazy thing is, he did not make the Olympic teams in 2016 or 2020. He was not named either time. 2016, he had a pretty good case. 2020, not so much. Now, he's in the conversation. I He wouldn't be on the team right now. I think it's pretty clear, based on the recent results, Cisse Lemmert, who won this race, and Tamarat Tola, who won New York in a course record. Those would be the two guys he would pick. Third spot? Pretty up in the air. He got beaten by an Ethiopian, another Ethiopian, Dewitt Walde in this race. But 
he had the number four time by an Ethiopian this year uh, in Valencia. If he runs a good spring marathon, he could be on the team. It's it's cr- it is crazy to think, but it is possible. Yeah, he also he beat the Tokyo champ, right? Who's Ethiopian in this race? Correct, Charlie Desso, aka Desso Gelmisa. This run was amazing, but a two hundred four on its own isn't going to put you on the Olympic team. I mean, he ran two hundred one. When was that? Four years ago. Four years ago. But it's still crazy. This time would have been the world record in 2007. So Bekele's track career was essentially almost winding down at that point. If you said, hey, dude, 15 years from now, you run faster than the world record, you're going to take it? <laughs> you're like, hell yeah. To be honest, I was pumped by it. I don't really think he's going to be even be. I mean, I hate if he knocked out a spring marathon, but what are the odds of that? But I mean, no one's talking about Tequila Bikila, who was third in Berlin. He's 203 24 this year. So Bikila is the fourth fastest Ethiopian. But it's just remarkable. And he did go with the lead pack for about 15K. So it's not like he just ran in 204 pace. I mean, that, that's one of the things we haven't really talked about. What do we make of Cheptegei? We all thought coming in, he's, he's talking about running a 203 race. The problem was there was no 203 pace. Like it was 60-35 or it seemed like the, the, the other main pack was like 62-50 something. So he kind of either solos it or goes for broke and he went for broke. And not many people are good at running on their own, but Keeley's done it in the past where he's just kept chugging along, you know, and he did a pretty good job of it here. Chepta guy did not. I mean, the 68 minutes, second half. And John said coming in, he was like staggering could barely stand up. Like this was not just him. Like I was wondering if he just like jogged it in, in 68 minutes. No, John, he was hurting, right? Oh, badly. But look, mad respect for him for going out on that pace. That's kind of that's the champion's mindset. Like if you're Joshua Chepta guy, you're the world record holder in the five can tank it, you're just you're going with the lead pack. You're like, you know, I'm Joshua effing Chepta guy. I'm doing Well, it. hey. I mean, Mo Farrell, when he was the peak of his game, I guess he wasn't the five and ten thousand world record holder, had never proven the ability to go with the fast pace. But he did not go in the lead pack when he made his his his, his marathon debut, and was disappointing. So it's weird. We play it both ways. I was like, "Oh, what a coward, Mo Farah!" And then in this race, I'm like, "Wow, Cheptegei was really stupid." So if he hadn't gone with it, I would have complained. And now I complain that he went out too fast. But it is kind of weird. I'm, I'm surpr- a little bit surprised that they didn't have like. I mean, I, I think that the the lead group was supposed to go like significantly slower. What was the time? I think it was supposed to be somewhere in the 61 flat to 61.15 range, something like that. I mean, my takeaway for Cheptegei is obviously not the race he wanted, but we already knew coming in he was a little undercooked. I think his buildup was only about eight weeks. He had that foot injury off the Worlds. He didn't. He wasn't running mega miles. Now, part of that's the terrain anyway, so I don't know. But I don't think you look at this and say, oh, he'll never be a great marathoner. But we had some. We did have some concerns going in. We thought Jacob Capelimo would be more suited to the marathon than Chepta guy. We thought, you know, we knew he was a little banged up and didn't get the full build up. And when you 
are in that position and you go out in 60-35, you are, you're going to get found out over the second half. That's what happened. I, I respect him for going for it. Obviously, he didn't close the way he wanted to, but when you're going out that hard and you're not ready for it, the second half is going to be painful. And he experienced what many, many marathoners have experienced uh, before. Yeah, I don't... I could care less that he blew up. Robert talked about appearance fees earlier. Of course he got hundreds of thousands of dollars to run this race. I'm glad he didn't play it safe. I don't want to see the I don't want to never see the world record holder at 10k on the screen. He goes out at 203 pace. He's never on the screen in the race. This is better for the fans. It didn't play out how you want, but like we didn't think he was going to come in and run a 201 marathon. That's what it took. So Someone can still, good news, guys. Somebody actually still blew up in the marathon. It's sort of like refreshing to see it happen to me. I, I could care less if he ran, I, I, I give him props for finishing, but if he like walked and ran 214 or dropped out, it doesn't make a difference to me. Like he gave it a go, blew up. See you next time after the Olympics. So, yeah, this, this is what I was saying after the full marathon season that what happened to the wall in, mar- in the marathon? Well, the wall still existed for Joshua Cheptegei. And it also makes me even more impressed by what Safan Hassan did. She just goes back and forth between the track and marathon seamlessly and makes it look easy. It's not easy. Safan Hassan's just an amazing freak athlete. So I have more appreciation for her after this. Right. But her first marathon was, you know, her second one was the faster one. There's a post here by Bekele Boy, B-O-I, sort of praising Bekele's run. But as he points out, the early pace was way too hot. So McKaylee has run a bunch of marathons, and he's a great concept of like what pace he can run. So he backed off, but the pace was still even too hot for him. But he was 60-58, finishes 204. Shepard guy has like never done one of these before. He's like, I'm a champion. I'm going to go for it. Paid the price. The McKaylee boy poster also points out, you know, even splits, McKaylee for sure can run probably two or three right now. So... Time isn't on his side, but somehow I want him to see him on the Olympic team. But not I don't want him put on it for like nostalgia reasons. I want to see a great run in April. And the other thing would be interesting to know from these races, why does everyone go to Valencia? Berlin is a fast course. But Valencia clearly, I mean, once reputation means something, but maybe they put up all these guys. They're like, hey, you're a 208 guy will give you the race free lodging. I don't know what it is, but it'd be interesting to find out sort of behind the scenes if they support these guys. There must be more money, right? And maybe the weather's more. Well, the weather in Berlin's always good. But back to Chapter Guy, what concerned me about him coming in, and, and I was re listening to last week's podcast, I guess Friday's bonus podcast. I mean, he'd run the two half marathons, he'd been beaten soundly in them by both. But the first of which, fourth in the world half, 2020, 59-21. And that was 10 days after his world record in the track. And John's like, you, John made some comment, like, oh, maybe he hadn't recovered. To me, I was like, no. When I heard that again, I was like, that's a major red flag to me. He was at the peak of his fitness. He had just ran a world record on the track. 10 days is enough to just jog around, do nothing. Now, maybe mentally you're, you've accomplished your goal. But, like, this, that was peak, peak. There's no doubting that's his peak fitness of his life. And 
He got worked in the half marathon distance. So I'm concerned what type of marathoner he'll be. The nice thing for the marathoners is, though, you don't have to be the best in the world to make a lot of money because there's so many majors. Four or five, you know, contenders, more than that in each of them. And your name, you can get paid. He, he can probably make a lot more money as a marathoner. But this makes me, if I'm him, think about maybe I don't want to leave the track. Why not stay on the track? For another year. Yeah, I guess you might if you still get the parents' fees. But 2025, try to do it again on the track. Stay on the track until you're no longer winning. Like that's what Bekele did. That's what Gebrselesi did. The only one who left when they were still winning was like Farah, right? I mean, some of these guys just want a new challenge. I mean, to be Joshua Chep, the guy wants to be the greatest runner in history. And to do that, I think he said a lot of the greatest runners in history, they've all tried the marathon at some point. He wants to prove... He's won the Olympics. He's won Worlds. He's won World Cross. What hasn't he done? Run a great marathon. So I can understand why, if that's what's motivating you, instead of running, you know, winning your fifth and sixth global titles uh, on the track, he wants to do it in the marathon. It's natural to understand that. Greatest in history. I, th- I thought that was determined. I thought it. this guy... Had that on lockdown. If some people can do something, I believe I can do better. Robert, just because you finally figured out how to use your soundboard doesn't mean you should just use gratuitous clips. That was a you forced that one, Robert. I agree mostly with him. Jakob singing praises of Jonathan Gold last year. Okay, I'll stop there, John. I'm just a excited. This is actually working two weekends, two weeks in a row. Should we talk about the other major development that happened in this race and how it affects the United States men's marathoners? Because there were four athletes. I mean, the one going into this weekend, we thought, okay, the U.S. is probably going to have three people in the top 64 of the Road to Paris list by the time of the Olympic trials. We won't have to worry about all the standards and stuff. It's just, you know, top three as long as they're under 211.30. The only thing that could screw that up is a bunch of athletes from countries that haven't already got three qualifiers going out and running super fast in Valencia. And that's exactly what happened. We had four athletes. Shokru Devliatov of Uzbekistan, Samuel Barada of Portugal, Khalid Chokud of the Netherlands, and Alberto Gonzalez Mendez of Guatemala all hit the Olympic standard their countries, they were all ranked behind Scott Fable entering the weekend. They all jump him. In addition, Sondre Nordstad Moen of Norway ran 207 in Fukuoka. He moves ahead of Fable. So Fable's now 66th. And out of the qualifying spots, the first wave of qualifiers that's going to be named on January 30th. Leads to all sort of, sorts of chaos. Now, there's other qualifiers in here. One of the guys ranked above him, John Hakazimana of Rwanda, is currently suspended for doping. Then the Guatemala guy, Alberto Gonzalez Mendez. Well, Guatemala doesn't have an Olympic committee right now. It's been it's their Olympic committee's been banned by the IOC and yet to be reinstated. So, who knows how this whole thing shakes up? But the so like everyone was feeling okay. We will have top three, the three athletes 
in the top 64 as of January 30th, there will be three spots unlocked by the Olympic trials on February 3rd. Might not be that way anymore. There might only be Look, two spots unlocked at the trials. Josh seems to be overcomplicating this. Bobble's no longer in the top 64. He's number 66. The top two across the line at the Olympic trials now, who assuming they've broken to 1130, will go to the Olympics. No, we look, Rob, we, we don't know this. We USATF has released a selection criteria. There are a lot of room for interpretation or misinterpretation. We published an article based on how we interpreted it, but USATF needs to come out and give an explanation. And probably we should have waited until hearing back from them before publishing this based on our interpretation. Stop being such a coward, John. Give me a break. There's nothing wrong with this article. USATF published a selection criteria. We found it on the website. It was on the weekend. We read it. And if you read it, if you have a competent understanding of the English language, it's pretty clear. It's not clear. The big takeaway, the way I'm reading it, the way I've written several message board posts, no one from USATF has corrected me. This has been up for 48 hours. So we have two spots. The question is, what happens for number three? And the big breaking development is USATF selection criteria says nothing about honoring the order of finish at the trials. What does that mean? It means you could finish third at the trials. Even Clayton Young could finish third at the trials, even though he's got the standard and not make the Olympic team. That sounds crazy, but the way I'm reading this, let me disclaimer, full disclaimer, and that's what I we in the article, we had a disclaimer. We said may not, it appears, etc. But they it says right here. In the case that USATF is not able to select a full team of qualified athletes from the selection event, so that means the trials, which is true, unless we have someone breaking 2810, we will not be able to fulfill the team there. Unless somehow Fable moves up two spaces in the next month. The U.S. will fill any on-field quota positions with qualified athletes based on their rank order on the road to Paris list. So they're going to fill the third spot based on your world ranking it says nothing about honoring the order of finish at the trials. This is disgraceful. Orlando, I see why they didn't want to pay for this because these these people that run USATF just don't get it. And people are like, oh, why does it matter if the 140th marathoner goes? I've explained this to people. I've tried to explain this to World Athletics. The U.S. Olympic marathon trials are the heart and soul of elite distance running. They are the Boston Marathon for every NCAA Division I runner. Everyone, so many of them, they keep running after college. The trials is, is the holy grail. And if we're going to send three, it, they should just let any of three, it's a legitimate trials, who cross the line, go. If you're finishing third in this massive race, you're good enough to run in the Olympics. You're not going to embarrass yourself. They're not going to have to shut down the Paris streets for an extra 40 minutes because of traffic. Hell, put a time standard in then. If you're not at 30K in this time, we shut you down and you're off the race, of course. But this is a joke. Imagine this scenario at the trials. I mean, it, it, John asked we need to get clarification. Only USATF is so incompetent that they can write documents that they often have to update them months after the fact. We have to sue them to follow the rules of their own documents. But I hope that they change this before the trials. The following scenario, Rupp wins the trials over 208.10, 208.45. Zach Panning, someone else like that, second. Clayton Young, third. Scott Fobble is fourth. Connor Mance, 
Hell, DNF, doesn't run it, doesn't matter. Rupp and Panning are on the team immediately because we have two spots. On April 30th, we get the third spot because Fobble's in the top 80. But it doesn't go to Clayton Young. It doesn't even go to Scott Fobble, who were third and fourth at the trials. It would go to Connor Mance because he's got a higher marathon ranking. This is so stupid. It, it, and then they have these dumb criteria about how you can't chase the time, but they're going to go off ranking. It doesn't make any sense. The document is contradictory. And this is what we pay the CEO more than a million dollars a year for. It's just, it, it doesn't change. We, 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 someone call up Chris Fox and ask him how he feels about the 2000 trials when they were changing the rules right before the day of the race and his wife got screwed out of Olympic spot. Like 23 years later, it's Groundhog Day and it's disgraceful. All right. Well, I, I'm not as up in arms about this over Robert, but because he's going off of, look, this is the, when I read this document, I do reach the same conclusion as him. It says, in the case that USATF is not able to select a full team of qualified athletes from the selection event, the U.S. may earn up to three quota positions in each gender category. The number of available quota positions will be determined after the Paris 2024 qualification period ends. The U.S. will fulfill any unfulfilled quota positions with qualified athletes based on their rank order of the Road to Paris list on May 5th, 2024. Guess what? If Scott, if we don't have three Americans in the top 64 at the trials, you don't have three qualified athletes. You have two. You have two qualified athletes, and then you have one person who will be hoping to get in. And the problem, as I see it, with this, the way this is written, is they define qualified athletes as someone who has the time standard or someone in the top 64. Then they make a note about you can reallocate a place to a 211.30 they don't even make it obvious they're going to do that. That's what we're assuming, that the top two finishers, if they're under 211.30, you'll be on the team. USATF doesn't have a specific line saying, okay, John, 211.30, we consider that a qualified athlete. John, you're losing people. No one. It's clear from what it's written that they're, that if we don't have three people on the day of the trials, the way it is written, they will not fill it based on the order of the trials. The U.S. will fill any unfilled quota positions with qualified athletes based on their rank order order of the road to Paris rank list. It doesn't say based on their finish at the trials. It says based on their rank order. So that is saying, and also you guys are confusing someone. You have to be, unlock these spots. The World Athletics is trying to help us. They said if any country has three people in the top 64, essentially by the date of the Olympic trials, they can send any three people they want to the Olympics as long as they've run out of 211.30. So that was the way to get around this. So that's why it's important. Scott Fobble falling out of the top 64 would be a big deal. I think USATF probably doesn't realize the committee that wrote this doesn't realize that they're not as written. It's not honoring the rank order of the trials. I think they can correct this. Max Siegel, you could argue fine. He has, he's in charge of USATF, but this is a big organization where volunteers are involved, this sort of stuff. Max Siegel is not responsible for this decision. It's a very technical thing. It's a good thing that there's things like let's run to point this out and we can get it corrected beforehand. Coaches, prominent coaches, John, like Ed Eystone, right, read our article and reached out and said, yes, we don't know what's going on. So people need to make a fuss. And ideally, I think, unless America wants to change its system, the top three, you could just rewrite this and say, we're going to go with the top three because the U.S. almost in all certainty, we believe we'll have three men at the Olympics because we will have three guys in the top 80 at by the end of the qualifying window. 
80 is the how many people are accepting the Olympics. They're trying to make a carve out here early on. So that is what it is. We're going to get some clarification from USATF, but I'm glad we're bringing light to this. We're still waiting to hear from USATF. We have reached out for comment. I mean, I, I am with Robert here. They say, in the case that USATF is not able to select a full team of qualified athletes from the selection event, they're going to go off this road to Paris list. Sorry, you can't select a full team of qualified athletes if there are only two spots unlocked. That's two people. That's not a full team. So I'm with Robert here. And if that's not what they meant, this document was worded quite poorly, but we haven't heard anything from them explaining the statement yet. So we will update you if we get any sort of clarification on this policy. Okay. And more positive news. The year of Ritzenheim continues. At the high school team national championships in XN. It's called Nike Cross Nationals for those of you overseas. Sophomore Addie Ritzenheim, the daughter of Dathan Ritzenheim and Kaylin, won the national championship on the girls' side. Surprise winner. Well, I don't know if you can call it the daughter of Dathan Ritzenheim winning and, uh, and his wife, who was fifth at the high school nationals. I mean, these were both, they were childhood sweethearts at the same school. Dathan won the national title. His now wife got fifth, and their offspring seems to have her best race every year at NXN. Delivered when it counts. Took the title down the Nike event. She was wearing on spikes this time. Yeah, this was a terrific run. Very exciting race, actually. Elizabeth Leachman got out to a big lead and looked like she was going to run away from this thing. There was like a pond on the course, basically. One of the puddles was so big that there was no other way around it. You had to just go straight through it. It was a fun race to watch. Ritzenhain was 17 seconds back at one point, but she overcame that gap, ran a smart race, and is the national champion. So, really fun to watch. And team-wise, it was also a great battle. I mean, we talked about the NCAA race on the men's side. Two Colorado schemes schools went one two. Addie Ritzenheim's Niwot High School, seventy-two points, same score as NAU at the at the NCAA men's champs. A great result, but it's only good for second place because Air Academy wins it, sixty-one points. Actually, Colorado went one two three in the team scoring. There was a school from Denver who got third as well. So. Exciting stuff to watch and a breakout race for Addie Ritzenhain, who's just a sophomore in high school. After the Mary Kane hype and now lack of hype, I vowed never to talk about a teenage girl. What I say, get back to me. My rule was get back to me when they PR at 19. I was very worried about Caitlin Tui. Now that she's proven herself to be legit. I don't know. With, her, with this woman's, young, Addie's young parents, she may be legit, but uh, 10th grade to me is too young to be hyping it up. It's interesting to point out that, yeah, it's a low team score, but their their second and third runners are actually 38th and 39th overall. There's so many individuals in the high school because there's not recruiting like there is in college. Like in college, almost all the top runners go to all the top teams. In NXN, it's like completely different. But you might also recognize the second runner's name. It's Rocco Culpepper. 
So if you want to do well at the national meet, just make sure that. Have Olympians moved to your town? Yeah, I, was, I guess we only, so Rocco has two Olympians for parents and Addy only has one. But it, it's a cool race. For the record, she was wearing on spikes. I only say that because I thought it was kind of funny. I read on the message board that in some other races she was had been wearing Nike spikes. Apparently, it's on, on doesn't make a lot of spikes in small female sizes for cross country. Since her dad makes a ton of money for on, it was good for them to stick it to Nike on their home campus. But congratulations to her. I was fascinated by the boys' race. Wait, wait. One last thing on the girls' race. Robert probably doesn't even want me to mention this. Do you realize an eighth grader got sixth? Gianna Rama. Eight, sixth place at NXN is eight, eighth grader. I, I think we can just mention I'm not like... I'm mentioning Addie Ritzenheim because she ran a great race. I'm not saying, oh, you know, she's going to be an Olympian in 2032 or that sort of thing. I think we can say, hey, these high school athletes, or in this case, a middle schooler, ran well without needing to endlessly hype up their future prospects. Can we get her in some pro races, though, John? She needs to race Sarah Hall. Then we'll have two generations at once. I mean, Sarah Hall and Ryan Hall and Ritz were all racing each other and now. Young Addy could be racing them. Be interesting to see where she goes to college. Jerry Schumacher did not send his own children to Oregon. They went to Stanford. Well, not all of them, just one. Um, but Walden asked if it was an upset or not. She was ranked sixth in the mile split rankings coming in. On the men's side, the boys' side, it was a big upset both in the team and individual races. Joe Jordan, Utah runner, won the individual title. As Utah teams went 1-2, he's not part of one of the teams. Harriman first, American Fork second. What's fascinating about this is Joe Jordan was 31st in the mile split rankings coming in. Now, he was the 4A state champion, but the 5A state champion Utah was American Fork, and they're second here. They they were undefeated. They had Dan Simmons, who was the individual favorite here. He ended up 13th. Not sure what happened because he was way back at the start. I don't know if there was a fall. John's been I've been looking for interviews. We can't find anything about it. But at the Utah State meet, it wasn't even close. American Fork put three ahead of Harriman's first runner. And if you're looking at how could they win, it looks like, oh, maybe American Force fifth was a little bit shady. Like they're kind of far down. Like they may be in a larger field. They get buried at a school like NXN, but that didn't happen. American Forks fifth man beat Harriman's fifth man at NXN, but Harriman's your champion because they put, they, they go, their third runner was ahead of American Forks second runner. Hell, their fourth runner was almost ahead. Seven, nine, 14, 19. Whereas American Fork went 118, 24, 25. Both teams had a fifth runner in the 30s. And Harriman, who had been destroyed at the state meet. I mean, at the state meet, it wasn't even close. American Fork's third runner at the state meet, Chase Pack, ran 15-11. Dan Simmons ran 14-44, by the way. He was 10 seconds ahead of Harriman's first runner. 
Well, hold on, Robert, Robert. We need to address this. Harriman has a runner called Chase Pack. We just appreciate how glorious the name that is for cross country. We've got some good names in recent weeks, like Fast Horse. But for the record, JoJo Gordon. Sorry, American Fork. He's on American Fork, not Harriman, just for the record. JoJo Jordan won the 4A state meet in 1458, whereas Simmons had won it in 1458. To me, it's interesting. And by the way, the coach at Harriman is Doug Souls. He had an NXN team title in in California. He moves to to Utah, sets up a new team, and does it again. So congrats to him. He's obviously a very good coach. And there was some controversy. He's always been talked about in the message boards. To me, this is proof. Coaches should just leave wherever they are after like seven years. People start to not appreciate you anymore. Critics come out. Just just move on. Start over again. It's more fun to build a new team anyways. But apparently he was telling the guys all along, like, hey, you can still win. And they did. But some of these, I don't know what happened to Simmons, the slow start. I almost feel like running on a – I always say that running in a hot weather – for some people, running in super hot weather is just a completely different sport than running in regular weather. And I do feel like – particularly for some of the more mile-oriented guys, like running in a pond is a lot different than regular cross-country running and harder to do. Well, Simmons wasn't the problem for American Fork. He finished 13th in the race overall, but that was the number one team score. So as far as they're concerned, he won the race. But as you said, Robert, at the state meet, they went 1-2-3 overall ahead of Harriman's guys. But here... Right. Harriman's third guy beat American Fork's second guy. So I think that's where it got lost, if anything. But Doug Souls winning two national championships at two different schools. He's only been in Utah, I think, three years. It's pretty crazy. Kudos to him. The interesting thing about this race individually, the way JoJo Jordan won it, he went to the lead with like maybe a mile to go or 4K to go, something like that. He got like a lead of about one or two seconds. He never totally broke away from everyone. And when that happens, usually there was a huge pack coming after him. The last 800. And when that happens, normally someone will emerge from that pack and run the leader down. He was just able to hold on to this one or two second lead the rest of the way, which I thought was the hard way to do it, an impressive way to do it, but it ended up working for him. Yeah, and there's a tough hill at the end of this race. Nope. But I think it was the third placer, Nathan Neal. I mean, they only ended up two seconds behind him. That guy was closing like a free freight train. I think another 200 meters in this race is different, but he ends up winning by two seconds, which is actually kind of a comfortable victory. By the way, if you're wondering where they're going to college, Jordan is going to Wake Forest. He's going to BYU. Probably should have mentioned this when we were talking about the Olympic trials. The Cal International Marathon was held over the weekend. It was the last day to qualify for the Olympic trials. 27 new men have gotten under 218. 14 new women have gotten under 237. I don't listen to their podcast. I do see Sidious Max tweets. They had a nice finish line camera, people coming across celebrating. Also agonizing when they just missed it. But it's worth pointing out that if you watch that clip, you'll see Tommy Hase. I don't know how to spell that H S I E H. I don't know how to pronounce that. 
She finished in 237.04. The Olympic trial standard is 237. She looks a little distraught to have missed the time by four seconds. But it appears she will be going to the trials. Whereas in the men's race, Alexander Helmuth of Eugene ran 218.04, missing it by four seconds. He will not be going. Only because the rule book says, USATF selection criteria, gun time is only acceptable method of timing for the men. Consideration may be given to net chip times for instead of gun times for the women. And Tammy's net chip time was 237 flat. What was the guy's chip time? I'm assuming it's over the standard. And I think that they should just use the chip time period. Agreed. The chip time is not going to be wildly different. And when it's that close, just let them in. If they, so I, I would, I'm with you on that one, Robert. If it was like a Valencia marathon, you had a hundred guys at the start. Could take a guy a couple seconds to get to the start. Wow, fighting for male rights, John. Shocker on that run. But we should do this every time, right? The guy who misses the trials and girl, like the, the first non-qualifier, we should celebrate them. Not the fact that they miss, but they represent what Let's Run's about, oh. right? Like, I'm sure they feel like crap. Maybe a brand should sponsor them. Well, I thought we should definitely have him on the podcast. Should have had him on today. It wasn't like I missed it by four seconds. I missed it by a minute and six or a minute and 13 seconds. But I blame that people that didn't have the mile markers. We were right on pace through mile 20, and Weldon's like, we see 550 when we're supposed to be averaging 525. Weldon was pacing me this higher 26-point miles of the 2020 Vegas Marathon. For the record, full disclosure, I, I complained about cheater shoes. I, t- I picked a cheater marathon that was a net downhill to try to qualify. And John Kellogg had said, look, the mile splits at the beginning will be a behind pace, then they'll pick up. And we were rocking at like 505s, we're trying to average 525. And then we hit like 550. Well, it's like, maybe it's short. Maybe it's long. And then the next mile was Sure, it was like 505. So the average was like 527.5 for the for that two-mile split, which wasn't too bad. And I was like basically right on. And I just mentally, I lost it. I'm like, I can't afford to miss it by like five seconds. And I kind of just jogged it in by a minute. Didn't jog it in, but I just was mentally broken. And the guy that was with me, Weldon was like, can I run ahead and get some prize money? So Weldon got some prize money. And the other guy that was with us, I see him at the finish line. I'm like, oh, that poor bastard. He must have missed it by like 10 seconds. I was like, oh, man. How'd you do? And he's like, oh, I made it by 30 seconds. I negative. I, I slammed the last two miles in 10 flat. I was like, holy crap. Wait, did I? Sorry, John. Did I get the time too? Like I just left you to go make some money? Yeah, we, we, you knew that I was a mental weakling and just given up. I hope when I go for my sub three that I don't do that. Just keep fighting. Wow. Sorry that you had to rehash that on the podcast, Robert. Okay, I think that is going to do it for the show this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Super busy weekend of racing. It's probably going to be the last big one of the year. We do have the Foot Locker Cross Country Championships and Eurocross coming up this week, though. No Jakob Ingebrigtsen at Eurocross. Oh, John. Yeah? You're missing, you're missing a big one. What? 
Patriots Steelers Thursday night football. I don't know. I I didn't I intentionally miss skipped over that. Can I it's basically the I know it's 2023, but to me this is the start of the 2024 season. Yared Nagusa's 2024 debut happens in Hawaii. There's a pretty good mile field, road mile field. A lot of the on athletes are there. I don't count that as 2024. I just view that as like I still kind of view that you view that as like a, as a off opener. I just view that as kind of like a turkey truck type thing, even though it's December. For the record, I pulled up the results of the 2000 Las Vegas International Marathon. Oh, I didn't realize Chris Lingen was the Olympic trials qualifier. Rusty Snow is the guy who beat Robert. But I see Robert Johnson here in fifth place, 223.11, and Weldon Johnson, 223.12. So don't blame me for leaving you. I stayed with you to the end, and you still can get it done. Always there. I always got your back, Rojo. Wow. That's terrible to think about. Because I was thinking about like my son. He's an only child. And I would think back to my childhood. I don't really remember Weldon being there a lot. Like, I just viewed Weldon as an extension to me. But I don't remember like, playing with him. I remember playing with like my younger cousins and stuff, but like Walden was just kind of like me. But in this case, I remember he's like, can I go ahead and get the prize money? And I got very upset. I was like, no, but I thought he left me, but he didn't. Wow. And you said, John, that he asked me about my arm last week and I said he didn't. So he's actually doing these things and I'm just, he's just a little better than me at everything. And I'm jealous and I'm blocking it out. God. There it is. We'll also keep track of that every podcast. How many times he says I'm just a little bit better than him to everything. John's smile says it all. All right. Well, Robin's excited about the this mile in Hawaii. I normally would ask to go cover it, but I'm going to be in Kansas City this weekend. Chiefs-Bills. Big NFL game on Sunday. It's a fun bros trip with some of my college buddies, so very excited to see that one. John, if you get a date with Taylor Swift... I'll be very impressed. <laughs> so would I, considering she's taken at the moment. Taylor Swift has left Travis Kelsey. Who is this man? John, if it does happen, we just roll the podcast as normal next week. We don't bring it up. We just... what do you Wait, wait, hold on. This hypothetical that clearly would never, ever happen. The You, the person who brings up my love life unprompted, like, once a week, once a month on this show, if I was somehow dating the most famous person in the world, you just wouldn't mention it at all. That's an absolute lie, Robert. I might just say, hey, everyone have a good weekend. How'd it go? And then just see if you bet and then just keep acting like nothing happened. At this point, I don't want to upset her. I mean, God, we have to oh. charge for the podcast immediately, right? It's no longer free. We have to just charge for like with that episode. For you like- don't want to upset her. Her fans will come after you, Robert. So I, I wouldn't want to break up Travis and Taylor. They're, you know, they seem to be quite happy together at the moment. So my business idea is a bad one. I want to start a website. When will Taylor and Travis break up? You put in a dollar. You put you predict the date, and it could be like a ten million dollar prize based on how many people do it, and we take ten percent off the top. I feel like you're, you're tempting the Swifties. You're tempting the wrath of the Swifties on that one, Robert. But wait, wait. Let's should we? Mind. This is kind of relevant. Should we mention Let's Run former Let's Run intern Carl Winter was on the Taylor Swift beat over the weekend. He was charged. He works at the local TV station in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The Chiefs were playing at Green Bay on Sunday night. He was charged with getting to the airport 
before and after the game. So they, oh, sorry, getting, yeah, getting to the stadium or the airport, getting to the airport after the game to witness Taylor Swift's private jet fly away from the airport. So basically staked her out, filmed the SUV coming in, and then the Jimmy Kimmel Live found it so amusing that he had been assigned to this beat. They used a clip of his broadcast on the Jimmy Kimmel show this week. So congrats to Carl. He's made the big time. That's great. And if you want to enter him for Let's Run in 2024, email us at podcast at com. All right. See everyone next week.